we've got some good stuff in the text this morning. Good stuff. And uh, it's going to be a surprise because we're going to jump ahead. So guys, we're actually in Luke 20. And uh, we're in Luke 20, starting in verse 1, which is weird because we left off in Luke 19 at the very beginning. And, and last week, we finally arrived. We'd been in that tra- travel narrative of Luke since Luke 9:51, when Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem, and they had been on this great journey, and we've all been asking for months and months and months, you guys have at least, Pastor, are we almost there? And yes, we are there. And as Jesus arrives and is about to enter into Jerusalem, he tells this one last parable, this parable of the ten manas. He does it because the crowd that is there is growing with anticipation that the kingdom of God is going to come at once. And so he tells this great parable. We went into detail about that last week. But it seems the crowd still didn't understand him because the moment that he comes down from the Mount of Olives and enters into the city of Jerusalem, they begin to take off their garments, uh, their cloaks. They begin to lay down palm branches and they begin to shout out, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. The crowd still had this great expectation that Jesus was going to walk into Jerusalem that somehow he was going to walk up into the palace, that he was going to kick out the guard, and that he was going to seat himself on, on the throne, if you would. But Jesus doesn't take that route. Luke says that he doesn't go to the palace. He doesn't kick out the Romans. Instead, he goes to the temple, and he kicks out the money changers. He kicks out the money changers. And it says from that moment on, he begins to preach and to teach the good news. And that's where our story picks up. You may remember we covered the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday. So this morning we pick up in Luke chapter 20. Uh, I, I will recap a little bit of 19 just so you remember where we are. But let's pray first. Father, uh, help us not to go through the motions of prayer. We've been told when we should pray, we should say, Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. God, we have learned to pray that way. But I fear that we often don't allow you to actually be our father. We don't run to you like we should. We don't come to you like we should. So this morning I pray that in a very special way, maybe um, like hasn't happened in a long time, that we would feel that grace and that love and that affection of you as father. And that we would come and we would sit and we would let you gently teach us your word. Holy Spirit, um, you are the teacher of this church, which brings us great confidence. We pray that you would teach us the words of Jesus from the inside out, that we might leave here uh, with those words imprinted on our hearts, with a deep desire to live for the kingdom of God and for the Lordship of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
Luke 19, I'm going to start in verse 47, and then we'll get to our text in 20. It says, Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. One day as he was teaching the people in the temple courts and he was preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the teachers of the law together with the elders came up to him, tell us by what authority you are doing these things, they said. Who gave you this authority? He replied, well, I'll also go. I'll also ask you a question. Tell me, John's baptism, was it from heaven or was it from men? They discussed it among themselves and they said, if we say it's from heaven, he's going to ask us, why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, all the people will stone us because they are persuaded that John was a prophet. And so they answered, and we don't know where it was from. Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. He went on then to tell them this parable, tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, and he rented it to some farmers, and he went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent another servant, but that one also they beat and treated shamefully and sent away empty-handed. He sent still a third, and they wounded him, and they threw him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my son whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When the people heard this, they said, may this never be. Jesus looked directly at them and asked, then what is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them, but they were afraid of the people. A lot of text there. I'm going to share three things with you. One, dealing with the questions that arise. And two, dealing with the parable that is taught. The first thing I want you to understand this morning is this. 
those who accuse God must be prepared to answer him. Those who accuse God must be prepared to answer him. And I want you to see clearly what is happening here. Jesus has not just overturned the tables of the money changers. He has actually overturned the lives of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and and the chief priests. You see, this temple used to be theirs. It was their place of prominence. They controlled the temple and they controlled its teaching. And all the people looked up to them. But when Jesus enters Jerusalem, everything changes because he goes into the temple. And and, and suddenly the temple is no longer a place of prominence for these people. Because Jesus declares this in verse 46. He says, my house will be a house of prayer. See, Jesus, immediately upon entering Jerusalem, doesn't head to the palace and sit on a throne. He goes to the temple and says, this is no longer your place, this is my place, and I'm taking it back. And the chief priests, and the elders, and the Sadducees, and the Pharisees, they've lost all of their places of prominence. They have been cast aside, and now they are seeking an opportunity to regain the influence as they once had. And so Jesus is there, and he's teaching, and he's preaching the gospel. That's what he did. He came and he cleared out the temple, and he began to really teach the ways of God and and to preach the kingdom of God. And, and, And so the text says he's preaching the gospel, and as he's preaching the gospel, they attack him. By the way, self righteous religious people hate the gospel. A gospel that says that there's nothing on your own by yourself that you can do to earn the love of God. But it is God that loves you just the way you are. It is God that loves you in spite of yourself. And it is only God that can bridge the gap that sin has created between you and himself. Self-righteous people hate that message. So Jesus is preaching the gospel, they, they attack him, and, 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 and their attack is an attack on his very authority. So they, they accuse him here in verse 2, the question that they ask publicly in front of all the people that are hanging on his words, according to verse 28, the, the question they ask him is, tell us by what authority you are doing this thing. The other way to translate that might be, who exactly do you think you are? Who, who do you think you are to come into our house and to, to, to run out our money changers? Who do you think you are to steal our audience and to teach this gospel of yours that has nothing to do with the works of man and the laws that we have taught? Who exactly are you to do this to us? Who do you think you are? That's the question. They're, they're actually attacking their accusing Jesus of not being who he claims to be. So Jesus responds to their accusations with a question. It's a straightforward one. He says, John the Baptist, was his baptism from God or was it from man? Answer me that. If you you want to attack me publicly, let me now ask of you publicly, was John's baptism from God or was it from man? Now, if they say it was from God, then the people are going to turn on them and say, wait a second, you guys are supposed to be our teachers and our leaders. Why is it you weren't baptized by John? And if they say it's from man, the people are going to turn on them and stone them because because they believe that John was a great prophet. You say, why does Jesus point to John the Baptist? When people are questioning his authority, 
Well, friends, because John the Baptist is the first one that proclaimed who Jesus was. John 1.29, right? The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Look! The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so now the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the chief priests and the elders and the scribes are caught and they can't answer. They thought that they could accuse Jesus without being called out themselves. And they were wrong. This morning I want to tell you why. They were wrong because those who accuse God must be prepared to answer him. If you want to attack God's character, you better bring your big boy britches. Job learned that. Job, a great man of faith, learned that. Do you remember that story? Turn with me to the book of Job, if you don't mind. It's right there before the book of Psalms. I'm going to be in chapter 38 Job chapter 38, starting in verse 1, says, Then the Lord answered Job. Now listen, Job has been faithful for chapters and chapters and chapters. Job has not complained. He has lost everything. But at some point, he breaks. At some point, he he goes from being faithful and, and from even questioning God to really kind of attacking the very nature and character of God. And then it says this in Job 38, verse 1, Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm, and he said, Who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimension? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On, on, on what were its footings set? Or, or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and the angels shouted for joy. Who shut up the sea behind the doors when it burst forth from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness. When I fixed limits for it and I set its doors and bars in place. When I said, this far you may come and no farther. Here is where your proud waves halt. Have you ever given orders to the morning, Job? Or shown the dawn its place that it might take the earth by the edges and shake the wicked out of it? Job 40. God speaks again. The Lord says to Job, Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Get this next verse. It's Job 40, verse 2. Let him who accuses God answer him. You see it? Let him who accuses God answer him. Then Job answers the Lord, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I'll say no more. And the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. Brace yourself like a man and I will question you and you shall answer me. And God begins to question him again. Maybe you're here and you're one of those people. Life has been hard. 
When life is hard, we have questions for God. I want you to understand God's big enough for those questions. It's okay to question God, but there is a line in the sand in which our questions for God are no longer innocent inquiries, but rather they become accusations and attacks on the character and nature of God. There are points in times when instead of just really wondering why, instead we, we say, why God? As in, you're not good, God. As in, don't you know God? As in, how can you not understand God? As in, you're not just God. And in those moments, those questions that may have been born in innocence and and, and lack of understanding actually become accusations against the very character and nature of God. And I want you to understand the complexities of what happened in that moment. In that very moment, we mere mortals who were made in the image of God and chosen above all creation to be redeemed and brought into relationship with God. Very special to God, but still mere mortals, in those moments we ask the maker of heaven and earth, not ask but rather accuse the maker of heaven and earth, who laid its foundations and calls the sun and the moon and the stars out and tells the sea it can come only so far, who hears the prayers of 7.5 billion people all at one time, we begin to accuse that God of not being good because we lack something we want. And I just want to say to you, it is okay to question God, but when you begin to accuse Him, you must be prepared. Because like Job, and like the Sadducees, like the Pharisees, and the scribes, and the chief priests, I believe God will force you to answer some tough questions. Like, who are you? Tell me, how good Have you been again? Tell tell me why you deserve such special privilege. Tell me of all of the good works of your hand that you did by yourself. And we find ourselves in that moment, hopefully like Job. By the way, here's how he responds. I think it is the only proper response. Job 42, 1 through 6. And then Job replied to the Lord. When he faced that questioning, he replied to the Lord. I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my counsel without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now, and I will speak. I will question you, and you shall answer me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. Friends, I share this with you because I think it has happened to all of us at one time or another. I think the difficulties of life invade. And at some point, we may have a, a genuine question. Why, 
But in our sinful nature, that genuine question and desire for understanding often turns into an accusation against God. When you find yourself there, can I encourage you, please? Would you take the same route as Job? Repent. Confess to God that you don't understand how big he is and everything that he is doing and how it is all interconnected and that that knowledge in truth would be way too much for you to handle. Okay? It's the first thing I share with you this morning is that those who accuse God must be prepared to answer him. Second thing I would share with you here out of our text is this. What you do with the Son of God is the most critical decision in your entire life. What you do with the Son of God is the most critical decision in your entire life. And so Jesus went um, on to tell this parable of a vineyard, and the vineyard had been rented to a group of farmers. And so the owner, when harvest time came, he, he sent a servant to, to get some of the fruit. Not even all of the fruit. It's his vineyard. He rented it. He said, I just want my portion of the fruit. And it says that the, the people that he rented it to, the farmers, uh, mistreated the servant. And they sent him away empty-handed. And so he sends another servant, and they do the same thing third servant and they do the same thing and so finally the owner says listen surely they won't treat my son with that way like surely they will respect my son and so he sends his son to to these farmers that have rented out the vineyard right and 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 so the farmers uh, say look look there is the son he is the heir what we'll do let's kill him and then we'll take his inheritance this vineyard shall be ours And this is what I want you to understand. Here's the point. This is the climax of the story of God and the leadership of the Jews. It's the climax of the the story of God and the leadership of of the Jews, uh, of, of the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees. God has time and time again sent his messengers to the leaders of the Jewish people, the the prophets. And each time they they mistreated them, often they killed him. That was Stephen's accusation against them. You'll remember in Acts chapter 7, he says this in his great speech. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of, of the righteous one. And so now the son, right, of the owner is standing in the vineyard. Now the son of the owner is standing in the vineyard. Jesus is literally standing in his house. And and the scribes and the Pharisees and and, and the chief priests have to decide what they're going to do with him. It is going to be the most critical decision that they make in their entire life. And unfortunately we know the truth. We know what happens Instead of accepting his authority, accepting his ownership, relinquishing control over over the temple, over the nation, over their lives, they plot to kill him, to try to take away his inheritance. They want to be in control of this nation, of these people, of this temple. And sadly, as we studied last week, it will end in... Complete destruction for them. Listen. In life, each of us is faced with the same decision. And it is the most critical decision that we will ever make. Will we accept Jesus as the Son of God? As the Son 
of the owner? Will we accept his authority and his rightful rule? Will we submit to it or will we reject it? Will we reject it? That's the second thing we have to see is that what we do with Jesus, what we do with Christ, that is, that is the greatest, the most critical decision of our entire lives, which leads uh, just to our last point. Ready? It's this. Our, our eternity is either built or broken on Jesus Christ. Our eternity is, is either built or broken on Jesus Christ. So uh, Jesus is the Christ. Our text says he, he's the capstone or, or the cornerstone. You remember Jesus asked his followers at one point, who do, who do you say I am? He asked them who the crowd said he was, but he says, who do you say I am? And Peter responds, you're, you're the Christ, son of the living God. And he says, blessed are you, Peter, because this wasn't made known to you by man, but by my, my Father in heaven. And then Jesus says, upon this rock, right? Uh, not upon you, Peter, upon this rock, upon this revelation, that I am the Christ, that I am the Son of, of the living God. This is the rock of all faith. This is the fact. Upon this rock, I'll build my entire church. At the end of his greatest sermon, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus puts it this way in Matthew chapter 7. He says, Therefore, everyone who hears the words of mine and, and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain came down, and the streams arose, and the winds blew against, and they beat against the house, yet it did not fall, because its foundation was upon the rock. You see, those who build their life upon this truth that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Son of God, their life is unshakable. I'm going to say it again. Their life is unshakable. It does not mean that the storms will not come. It does not mean that the rain will not fall. It does not mean that the streams will not rise. It does not mean that the wind will not blow and beat against the house. It does not mean that there won't be hailstorms. It does not mean that they will not fall or that they will not trip. It means that their eternity is secure for their foundation is sure. That's what it means. And if you build your life upon the truth that Jesus is the Christ, that He is the Son of God, that He is the the Son of the owner, if you build your life upon the cornerstone, the Bible says it is unshakable. There is nothing the enemy can do. Though death may knock at your door, it will have no sting. Right? There's nothing the enemy can do to destroy your life if it is built upon this cornerstone. So that's the good news. The bad news is for all who reject Jesus' role and place as that cornerstone, there's great peril. Jesus says this in verse 17, directly speaking to these people. He says, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces But he on whom it falls will be crushed. For those that reject Jesus, who reject his role, who reject the fact that he is the cornerstone and the foundation of all life and existence, including eternal life. For those that reject that, there will be great ruin. Their lives will be crushed. There will be the people we talked about last week. There will be the people that we just read about this week. The truth of his identity will be their destruction. And they'll know it. The Bible says that every eye will see when Jesus returns. That every knee will be forced to bow. And every tongue will have to confess. Unfortunately, many of those tongues and many of those knees and many of those eyes will be broken in eternal torment when they finally understand it. 
you either build your life upon Jesus or your life will be broken upon Jesus. That is the truth of God's word. So what do we do with that? Let me give you some application. I've talked too much. That never happens here, right? First and foremost, I would encourage you to tenderly ask of God. Tenderly ask of God, but don't attack. Listen, you have questions, that's okay. Could I offer this little piece of advice? (sighs) Would you think about those questions in light of the truth of who you know God to be? Because the enemy wants to convince you like he wants, wanted to convince Adam and Eve, right, that God is holding out on you. That God is not as good as he says he is. That God must not be able to save. But the truth of Scripture time and time again says that there is a reason for what God is doing, even though we cannot see now, we will one day know in full. Right now we just know in part. It tells us time and time again that God's ways are not our ways. There's no... Listen, I, I, I know you're grappling with things in life. I, I, I am too. There are huge questions in my life right now that I have no answers to. I, I don't know if healing will ever come. I, I, don't, I, don't, I, I, I don't know why things have happened the way that they happen. I, I, I don't know if I'll ever get past certain things. I, I, I don't know. But this is what I do know. I know that God's word is sure. I know that his kingdom will come. And I know that I will be fully restored one day. I know that one day I will see in full and I will be able to say, probably through tears on my face, Oh God, you were so merciful and good. So much more merciful and good than I ever deserved. Please forgive me for every time I thought less of you. I'm not telling you not to ask. I'm just saying when you ask, would you do it tenderly of God? Ask for understanding. Don't attack his character, okay? Two, uh, decide today what you'll do with Jesus. Most of you in this room are uh, Christians, and that's okay. That's awesome, in fact. Brothers and sisters, do we still not have to decide today what we'll do with Jesus? Jesus, will I accept your authority in my life today? Will I accept what your word says about my marriage, about my finances, about my job, about my mission? Will I accept it, right? So I I just, I I say this, uh, primarily this deals with salvation, of course. And and, uh, in the early service, I realize most of us here are Christians. But if you're here today and you are not, I need you to understand what you do with Jesus is the most critical decision in your entire life. Entire life. Lastly, um, I would say this, keep building. Anyone who hears these words of mine, puts them into practice, is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Um, long ago when I used to go to uh, Hermosillo, Mexico to do mission work, uh, it was nothing to drive through Mexico and look at a building that looked like it wasn't finished, but people were living in it. And we would ask, what's the deal? Why is the rebar still sticking up? And why does the roof look the way that it does? And they said, oh, 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 oh. 
Well, if, if you finish the building, if you finish the structure, the government will tax you for a finished home. But if the rebar is still sticking out, they can't tax you. How's the house looking? Are you still building? Are you still securing the walls? Putting on a good 30-year shingle? Are you making sure you're sealing up the windows? How's the house? I'm afraid many of us think that the words of Jesus only apply to our salvation. But the truth is, once we've accepted Christ, our salvation, our foundation is taken care of. It's now our sanctification. It's our becoming like Christ that's at stake. Anyone who hears these words of mine, don't go home and just turn on the TV. Anyone who hears these words of mine, don't ignore them and just go take a nap. Anyone who hears these words of mine, don't wake up tomorrow and just go to work and act like nothing has changed. Anyone who hears these words of mine, when you get up in the morning, don't turn on the news again first. Anyone who hears these words of mine, put them in to practice. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for loving us. It's a good word. It's a hard word. I pray that we'd be able to accept it entirely, completely, with all that we are. God, I want to pray um, for myself this morning and for all my brothers and sisters that fit into my category Lord, forgive us, for we have stopped building. God, even if we haven't stopped building, we're sure not building at the pace we once were. There was a time we were so infatuated with this building project and this sanctification, this work you wanted to do in us. There was a time that it consumed us. And every day we woke up and we wondered, what can I add to this? Lord, I fear for many of us, that's not the case. Would you call us back to finishing the work that you have started within us today? Because God, if you do, if you will, every area of our lives will be transformed by the power of your Holy Spirit. We ask these things. Amen.